Welcome to GRIT, the Real Estate Growth Mindset Podcast, hosted by Brian Charlesworth, founder of Sisu. Sisu provides growth automation software for real estate. You'll hear stories from real estate thought and technology leaders, team owners, and brokers on how they grew their business in a rapidly changing industry. You'll learn how to transform your brokerage and teams into a high-performing and analytics-driven business so you have a new, durable, competitive advantage against disruption in your market. So let's get right into it. All right, everyone. Hey, welcome back to the Grit Podcast. I'm Brian Charlesworth, the founder of Sisu and the host of the show. And I am really excited today to have this guest on the show. I've been wanting to talk to Louis for a couple of months now because he recently sold his business. So today we are here with Louis Hamner. Louis has been a partner of my wife Springs for many years on the title side of the business. He's the founder of Vanguard Title, again, which recently sold. Hopefully we can dive into that information. And Louis has also been one that's always been focused on inspiring people. So he, he comes in and talks to people and gets them all excited about things and truly been a motivational speaker, I think at a national level at this point, Louis. He's also ventured into a new area of breath work, which I'm excited to learn more about. And so anyway, Louis, welcome to the show today. It's what fun. would you like to add to that? Uh, nothing. That's it. just that I'm uh, married 26 years and I got three kids that I love and a wife that I love. Okay, great. That's always good to have a wife that you love. And I, yes. after 26 years, a lot of people lose that. So congratulations on 26 years. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, All right. All right. So starting out, Louis, why don't you give us a little bit about your background? Because I remember I went on a trip with you down to St. George one weekend, and I got to learn a lot about your background that I didn't know from your childhood. And I think that plays into who you are today. So can you give us a little background about just your life growing up? Yeah. So interestingly enough today is that my dad passed away in 15, 2015, and today's his birthday. So it's just kind of... Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, but my family... So I grew up in Indiana. I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. I don't even re- remember living there, but grew up in Indiana in a farming community with 13 kids in my family. And um, 13 kids. Now, how did this happen? I mean, like most people <laughs> listening to this show can't even comprehend yeah. 13 kids, yeah. including myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad always says that when they would have prayer for dinner or before going to bed or whatever family prayer that he always felt like there was somebody missing. And he's just like, where are all the kids? And he'd count them. And he's just like, no, somebody's not here. And, uh, wow. And obviously my mom obliged to that, you know, like she agreed with that. And so I'm number 11. There's two younger than me. And, you know, once they had my brother, who was the youngest, he said uh, he never felt that again. Like he would count the kids. They're like, yep, everybody's here. He's like, just never, you know, so it was like that feeling is what stirred the desire for another kid, you know? So oh, anyway, yeah. that's how that happened. Like, well, and, th- and thankfully it happened since you were number 11. Because yeah, I said, in, hey, most, I, in most families, you wouldn't have been born, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. So thankfully for that feeling. Because after 10 kids, you're like, or, you know, nine, I think it was after nine kids, they were really thinking, are we done or is it not? Anyway, uh, so again, yeah, grew up in Indiana and the first house that I can remember living in, I think it li- we lived there to about, as about six or seven, that there was two, I mean, technically three bedrooms, but really like the washer dryer where the, that was, that was a bedroom. And then there was a bedroom and then there was the my, where my pants were in. So you know, three bedrooms, one bathroom, and then we had an outhouse. And so I grew up like first wow. six, seven years of my life, you used the outhouse. You know, that was just, I don't know, it was crazy. But thinking about it, when I think about it, like it was just common. It was like, yeah, that's what you do. That's what you knew, right? This is what I knew, you know. In fact, anyway, so, but yeah, so like that's how I grew up. And I rarely can ever remember not being on some type of assistance from church or something where we just grew up really poor. I I remember not realizing how poor we were, but just recognizing that we didn't have stuff. 
that was like, for example, the starter went out on my dad's car and we couldn't afford to buy a new starter, which at the time was, I don't know, $17 or 20, you know, $3 or something, whatever it was. And anyway, so we had to, he had to jumpstart, push, you know, we'd have to get up in the morning, push his car, get him to you pop the clutch and then go to work. And I remember one day asking my dad, like, how do you get home? Like, who does this? Like, we do this for you to get to work. What do you do? And he said, oh, there's a hill that I park on. That's about, I, I think it was about a quarter mile, maybe a half mile away from work. And he would park on that. It was a really steep hill. And then he would just coast it and pop. <laughs> but just like on Karate Kid, it was like, when Karate Kid came out, I'm like, yes, that is exactly what you do. You have to pop the clutch. Thankfully, he knew how to pop his clutch yeah. and start it and, yeah. and not ever kill his car when he yeah. was driving with a clutch. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I joke around with my kids because we had this one car that no lie, like the brake would not come back. If you push the brake in, it wouldn't come back up. So you had a rope on the brake to pull it back up. We had a screwdriver that was in the turn signal because the turn signal had broken off. So we put a screwdriver in there. So if you wanted to go, see, so left, you'd push it down, you know, the screwdriver, because then you have to pull it out and then pop it back up. <laughs> you're pulling the rope. I'm like, I'm not joking. You're pulling the rope because you got to pump the brake and it's a stick shift. And my kids are like, well, how did you drive that? I'm like, I'm a Jedi. It's a pod racing. <laughs> like that, that went from a kid, like that was it, you know? Anyway. So, so you grew up as a kid, not having a lot of money. And yeah. so at what point in your life did you decide, mm -hmm. hey, this is not how I want to live. Like, this is not the life I want. Yes. In the seventh grade, I remember thinking, I just don't want, I couldn't wait to work so I could get money. I just thought about it. Cause I remember asking my parents, uh, when I was in the fifth grade, when can I start working? Detasseling corn or they're like, farmers won't hire you because you're too weak. You know, you're too little. There's nothing you can really do. They're like, you're going to have to wait till you're like in the eighth or ninth grade. And so the summer from sixth grade to seventh grade, uh, I started catching, I found this whole, whole story behind this. But the bottom line is I found, I got introduced to this company that would pay you to catch fireflies. And so in the summer of the sixth grade, I started catching fireflies for a penny a firefly. And then they'd give you this special canister to mail them to. And anyway, and just started doing that. And I got to catching 50 a night to 100 a night to 200 a night. So this is a 1982, 80, 82, 83. And like I got, and we lived in, out in the middle of nowhere, right? There's like nowhere, like filled the dreams nowhere. Just like we're 10 miles from a grocery store or 12 miles from well, eight to one, but that one was not very good. It was hardly anything. But if you want to go to a real grocery store, we were 15 miles to a grocery store. You know, and, I've heard so many stories about kids doing paper routes or mowing lawns. And, you know, I grew yeah. up doing some of that, at least on the mowing lawn side. But I've never heard catching fireflies. Yeah. Yeah. But it's such a great story. And I think it leads to this. Like, I look at kids today. I don't know many kids that are saying when can I start working? Right. Hmm. It's just a completely different culture. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, a lot of people would look at that and go, I can't believe he grew up with those challenges. Although tons of people grow up with those kinds of challenges. Exactly. And now it's like, okay, look where you've come. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of times, you know, some of the most successful people grow up in that type of environment and decide that's not how they want to live. Yeah. And that's what did it for me because what I kind of, it was kind of interesting that you say that because again, like I said, it took me a month, about a month or two, but at first I was catching 50 a night, 75, then I got 75. Then my, I maxed out about 150, but it only take me an hour, make a dollar 50 an hour, 1982. Like that was pretty good money, right? Tax-free. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but it got to a point where I could literally catch I could go out into the woods, into this thick woods that was got dark an hour earlier before it even started getting dark, you know, out in the field, right? Anyway, so it got to be, I was catching a thousand a night, which in 1982, I was making $10 in an hour and 45 minutes, which was a minimum wage was like 225. I was making 10 bucks. And at one point, so here I am this, you know, in the sixth grade, 
that's why I say from the sixth grade on, like I paid for my own school books, go to school, I paid for my own clothes. I bought my own stuff from uh, sixth grade on. And, uh, but I was making, I remember at the end of that summer in the sixth grade, I had a couple hundred bucks, like in a couple hundred bucks, 270 bucks, something like that. That was a lot of money. Yeah. I remember my dad asking if he could borrow $50 so he could put tires on the car. I'm in the sixth, you know, I'm in sixth, seventh grade. Yeah. So like it was anyway. So that like, I realized that it's funny anyway, that when I got into the title business and not knowing anything, it's, I realized that I kind of had literally followed almost that same pattern. If I were to tell you details of the story of like what I went through to catch fireflies, I realized like I did the same thing in my business. It was just, so it was quite, it was really, so when you say that, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I did the same thing. So fast forwarding, you first, how did you get to Utah? Second, how did you end up in the title industry? And were there things between, like, how did you end up in the title business? So I got fired from Fidelity Investments. Long story, but it was mostly a political thing that, they had this thing called a career limiting move, a CLM. They're like, you committed a CLM. And you, you know, I mean, it was so, just like, so it was wait, you, went to, you went to work for Fidelity Investments. Did, was yeah. this, did you go to college? I had graduated. Yeah, I, I graduated. So I, I went to work for Fidelity in 2000, September of 2000. Okay. Then we had our first baby in December of 2000. And then in May, May 28th, 2003, well, actually I quit. There was a number of people that did this thing that Fidelity did not like, even though. So, it was so what? What is it? What is this CLM, Louis? What What did you do? Yeah, it was that career limiting move. So what it was is they they had it's called a charitable gift fund, and any employee, if you put ten grand into that charitable gift fund, Fidelity would match it seventy five percent, give you seventy five hundred bucks, right? But in the agreement and all of that it didn't say that the income had to be W2 income. It just said the money has to come from your account. So like that was not in the rule, right? So I took that handbook, I took it to my accounting professor. I said, listen, if my parents or my brother gifted me 10 grand because it's possible in the IRS code, and if I took it and put it into my bank account and I put it in there and it's really their money, but they gifted it to me, and I take the tax deduction. Am I breaking any rule according to what this is? And I took it to my accounting professor at UVU and he says, no, you found a loophole. No, you can totally do it. It doesn't say it has to be W-2 income or whatever, right? And so that's what I did. And then they came back. And so I was telling all these people to do it because it was a benefit. And they came back and they were like angry. And they're like, we know that this didn't violate the rule, but you weren't looking out for Fidelity's best interest. You should have told corporate so they could change it. You should have done this and you should have done that. And you're not a team player. And I'm like, it's a benefit. Like I just followed the rule, you know, they were angry because they did not anticipate so many people doing that. Yeah. I'm sure, they did. I'm sure they didn't. They, they were, just expected to match people's a small portion of people's income. Yeah. They said, we did not anticipate people making less than 50 grand, this many people to donate this much money and you guys are all LDS and that, so you, you know, you can push this money to admissions or, or whatever you guys do and all this stuff. I mean, they, they flew out two attorneys from Boston and grilled me for like four hours. And I said, wow. what did I do wrong? He's like, you weren't looking after the best interest. I'm like, wow. Very interesting. It was so interesting. Okay. So interesting. Anyway. Okay. So you got fired and what was your next move? Well, I got fired and. I didn't know what to do. And, and uh, so I found this job offer as an escrow officer for a title company and talked to my buddy about it, who owned a title company. And he's like, you should go do it. And my wife was a little worried because it was sales. And she's like, you've tried two other sales jobs and you quit within a week. She's like, you were not good at sales. You're shy. I did door-to-door sales for alarm systems, but I hated it. And plus I hated dogs. And I'm like, not only do I hate sales, but like, it was good money. It was just, you know, potentially good money, but I hate, I hated people's dogs. Anyway, she's like, are you sure you're going to do this? I'm like, ah, I'll, what else do I got? You know, we have nothing. And what I love, Louie, is you're like, you've never been afraid to fail, right? It's, that's what I, that's why this is the grit podcast, right? It's yeah. like everybody fails, but yeah. 
the grit to move on. That's the challenge that we all have in life, like to keep going and just have a vision and yeah, focus well, on execution. Yeah. I realized like, it's so interesting that this is on my dad's birthday because my dad was grew up on a farm. My grandma would tell me this story all the time because my dad is like most people's grandpa. My mom is 90. My mom will be 92 this year. So my dad, anyway, my grandma would always tell me how my grandpa had a mechanical tractor that had a horse, had a Clydesdale that pulled a plow. And from the time that my dad was six years old, my grandpa built a box on this plow and he would sit on this rock in the box and hold the harness to a Clydesdale. I mean, a Clydesdale, right? Like that horse is ginormous. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I thought every day that your dad would die because all it needed was a, was a snake to spook it. And I thought he would die. And so my dad, his work was so hard at home that he ran away to join the military because he's like, military is easy compared to home life, you know? <laughs> and, anyway, so my dad like just didn't let us get out of doing something just because it was hard. Like he didn't care. Like if it broke, he didn't care. I remember my brother broke his arm and we were cutting wood. My brother goes, I can't. He had broken his arm at a different thing, but he's like, dad, I can't carry wood because I broke my arm. He's like, you can carry wood, pick it up. He's like, your arm is a hey, dame. He's like, just pick it up. That grit that you're talking about, like, although I hated my dad being so merciless, I guess, you know, just such a slave driver in that I realized like, no matter what was happening, didn't give me an excuse to say, I can't do it, you know? Yeah. So, so what happened, so interestingly enough, I got into this job in the title business and I hated it. The first place I worked at was just terrible. Honestly, it was like terrible environment. Everybody was hating each other, all this backbiting and all this stuff. And I didn't realize it, but for like four or five weeks in a row, I got sick on a Sunday night. Felt like I couldn't go to work on Monday. Then my wife goes, Viv says, you've been sick every Sunday for the last four weeks. You're not sick. You hate your job. I was physically sick. I thought I was going to like throw up, you know? Very, very observant of her, right? Yeah. Well, so what's interesting is this, is that, so my dad was so like, no, you just do your freaking job and shut up and get it done. So I was so used to like just holding it in. I just thought I was sick. I, I had no idea that I was anxious. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. You're just like, yeah. you're just holding it in. Anyway, so I just thought I can't do this anymore because I felt like crying. Just like, I just can't. When she said that, I'm like, you're right. Like, I wish you almost, I wish you hadn't said it. Cause now I'm just, now I feel picked on you. Know? <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, so I called my dad and I never asked my dad for advice because I already knew what his advice was going to be. Like as a kid, what are you crying about? Either stop crying. Or I'll give you something to cry about. or I'll give you something more to cry about. Then you'll stop crying about whatever you're crying about before. Yeah. Like that's his Give you something real to cry about. Yeah, yeah, let me, let me, yeah, 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 that's right. So I called my dad and I was actually nervous because I was super, if I told my dad I didn't want to do something, or he'd be like, what, what is the matter? You get up there, you do that, you know, whatever it was. Anyway, so I called him and I just told him, I said, dad, Viv just noticed, like, I get sick. I thought I was getting sick. I said, I don't know what to do because I hate this job. I'm like, I'm on, I didn't tell him this, but we were on welfare at the time. Like, I was only making, I had two kids. Viv, Viv wasn't working and I was literally on WIC, like food stamps. And uh, I didn't ask anybody for money, but we qualified for WIC. And Viv's like, I know we're not going to ask, but I, we qualified for WIC. I'm going to do that. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I still didn't want to tell anybody, you know? Yeah. And so I uh, called him up and said, what do I do? I, I don't know what to do. And I was, I was waiting for him to like, shut the hell up and just go to work and figure it out. You know, this kind of stuff. And he said, if you quit today, and you went to go work for another title company. Could you do that job? Whatever, what's your job again? I'm like, escrow officer. He's like, could you actually go do that job at another company right now? And I said, no, I don't think so. Like, maybe I could, but I don't believe I can. Maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe. And he goes, here's the deal. You hating it this bad will drive you to learn it. And the minute you know that you can quit and go do it someplace else, then quit. But this is like an education for you. He's like, this is like getting your degree. You're getting a degree in this area. Learn it the best you can. Figure it out, whatever it takes. Work your ass off. Do all of this. And then when you have it down, quit. Because I promise somebody does it better. 
somebody somebody's created a company like that somewhere in utah where it's not all this bickering where it's not chaotic where people aren't fighting so that's what you need to do don't quit until you can do it someplace else that's great advice yeah and i was just like I'm going to, as opposed to like, yeah, you're getting picked on or get the hell out of there. They don't deserve you or, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. And I look back on it. And today I'm like, if I didn't call him, which I was very scared to do, you know, like I was just, I just nervous. Like, what's he going to say? And I think if I didn't call him, I would have just probably quit. So uh, how, how long did it take before you quit? How long did it take you to learn how to be an escrow officer? Um, so that was like in... September, I think that was about September. And then I never quit. So in December, I was going to quit. And then they gave me a $10,000 pay raise on December 14th, 2003. And the only reason I remember this is because one month later on January 14th, 2004, I got fired from that company. And I remember asking Douglas Farr, who fired me, he was the CEO of the company. And I said, why are you firing me? And he's like, you know why, if I have to tell you, that's another reason why we're firing you. I'm like, <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. Like, what did I do? And then he just says, we thought you would be a rock star in this industry and you're not. We thought you would crush it and you're not. So we're gonna fire you. And when I went home that day, I came home early and Viv goes, you know, how come you're home early? And I'm like, I got fired. She goes, that's impossible. No way. She goes, you work way too hard. There's no way. She says, there's no way you get fired two times in seven months. That is not possible. And I'm like, yeah, no, I got fired. She was like, you're kidding. And she's still doing whatever in the kitchen or something. And, and it wasn't until I started crying that she believed me. I'm like, no, I really got fired. I started crying. And she's like, oh my gosh, this is for real. What is happening right now? It was terrible. So- so obviously that was a message sent to you, right? I mean, maybe you weren't meant to work for other people, Louie. So yeah. you're sitting there getting fired and you're thinking the second time in seven months, what am I going to do? What kind of thoughts went through your head? Like when you start thinking about, okay, what's my next option? I really like my head was just spinning. I was just so hurt by it, you know, like, because I guess I'm destined to, like, I just thought I'm, I'm, I'm going to repeat what, how I grew up. Like, cause this is what happened. My dad was more stubborn. That was his thing. Like he was very stubborn, very like, no, nah, I'm not going to do very prideful. And like, so there were a couple of times he got fired. Cause I'm like, he's like, hell no, I'm not going to do that. Get somebody else to do it or whatever. And they're like, you're out of here. He's like, I don't care. You know, kind of, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know? And so then I thought, am I, but I thought I'm not being that. Honestly, it, it crushed me. And uh, I didn't want to go back into the title business because I thought if that's what it is, then forget it. Because it was like, it was a bad place to work. Like, Did, and, did uh, you ever start enjoying it once you learned it? I did. But what happened was I had a client call me up and say, hey, you were one of the best escrow officers I've ever used. I know you've only been doing it for a few months, but you were amazing. You, you, you have a gift for this. I don't know why they fired you. And uh and she was like, just go get a job at another title company and I'll send you my business. And I'll get the people that were, were sending you business, that they'll, they'll follow you. And so for a couple of days, I'm like, now, nah. and I try to get a job at Geico as a claims adjuster. Literally, I remember this, like applying for it. And I'm like, and they would ask me, what happened to your previous job? I'm like, how do you say that? I got fired. And the previous one, I got fired. But I promise you want to hire me. I promise, you know, like, how do you say that? So anyway, I got a job at a title company that was just, they hired me and it was like straight commission. Just if I brought a deal in, they would pay me. If I didn't, they let no skin off their nose if I wasn't any good, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but but more upside, right? I mean, if you're- Yeah, way more upside. Commission, more yeah, upside. way more upside. I went, so I figured out, I only had to do like, tw- like 18 deals where I was making more money than I was making before, only on 18 deals. And I was closing 35 at the other place. And- Anyway, so I thought I could do this. And I even remember going on a hike with my friend saying, do you think I could do this? Do you think I could be at sales? And he's like, people like you, you're likable. I'm like, really? And I'll never forget this Kenny, Kenny Triampha his name. And he goes, dude, I can't believe you think so little of yourself. You're likable. People like you. And I'm like, man, we get fired twice. You just seem like nobody likes you. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like I just, he goes, no, you, people will like you. So anyway, I got that job and I didn't like it. 
I didn't like it because I wanted something prestigious. Like I wanted a job that people, when you said what you did, they're like, whoa. And in my mind, I wanted to be like an FBI agent, something like that. Like if I said I was a federal agent, they'd be like, dude, federal (laughs) agent, you know? So I worked at that title company and I started making really good money after six months. I would, after six months, I was on track to make more money. Double uh, after six months there, I was on track to make double the income I had made the previous year. And I could not believe it. Previous year I made like 32,000 and I was going to make like 67,000 this year. Something like that. Roughly those were the numbers. And, and even though I love, like I was making more money, I, I hated it that people would say, I'd go to church or in the neighborhood, they'd say, oh, you're a title guy. And I'm like, I hate that title. I do not want to be a title guy. You know, like I want to be FBI, CIA, you know, double double seven or something, you know, like anyway. And I applied for the FBI and I wasn't smart enough to do that. They're like, we don't need you. If you spoke Arabic, you'd be in. And I applied to the DEA and actually the DEA after eight to 10 months, they're like, we want you. But by then I was making, I was on track to make like 120 in, in 2005. And, and what would have you made working for the DEA? Uh, I remember it was uh, total, but the base salary was 43000 But then if you added up all the benefits in the first year, right, it would be like the matching and stuff. It was going to be like 50 something. So I was going to take like a 50% pay cut. And then the highest I would make over the, you know, then they said, but you'd have to move around the country and all this stuff. And the most you'd make is like 75,000 a year or something like that. And, and I'm like, oh my gosh, even the most I would make, I'm, I'm making more. Yeah. And uh, Viv always said from her, she had a boss that always said to her, you know, never let your pride cost you money. Like never let your pride cost you money. It's not worth it. And she's like, you're letting your pride cost you money. You want this title. But, you know, she's like, I, I just want to do whatever you want, think is going to make you happy, but you're making more money than you would ever make. And potentially, we don't know what you could make in the next year, you know? So I end up staying and just figuring out, like, how do I get, I kept thinking, like, what do I have to do in this job that I would be happy in it? What do I have to experience to be happy in it? And so it was interesting is that, during this whole time, I didn't mention this, but this is so important because during this whole time when I would close people, you know, I'd close their loans as a title person, as an escrow officer. Every time we got to the 1003, I would ask everybody this question. And I remember keeping track, like thinking, I've asked 2,800 people this question. I'd ask them, what do you do for a living? Because I, you, you know, you can see how much they make right off the 1003. <laughs> like I would see how much they made. So I, I had an idea of what they would make. And then I'd say, what do you do for a living? Do you love it? And how did you get that job? Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, now I never, I can't, I didn't keep track, but I can tell you this. Here's what I learned after why I stayed was because of this. Because I asked that question all along. And here's what I learned. If I wasn't going to be a doctor, like a scientist, a hard science, if I wasn't going to do a hard science, a school teacher, and that means like psychology of science or something like that, engineering, something where you have to have a degree, you literally, if you don't have a degree, you're not doing it. So if you do not want to do anything with a hard science, then you did not pick your career. It just showed up. You figured it out. Mm-hmm. You didn't pick it. You loved what you did or you don't love what you do and you do something and you, you stuck it for the money. A lot of people are making good money. They're like, I hate my job. In fact, but I hate it. You realized you weren't the only one in this world yeah. that didn't love your job. Oh my gosh. Most everybody hated their job. And the only people that didn't hate their job had nothing to do with money. Or I'm sorry, the people that loved their job, it had nothing to do with money. It's just that they saw and understood that they chose it and that it fulfilled them. Yeah. And, the, and like, they were, yeah, they were passionate about it. Yeah. Right? They chose it. And so I thought there's nothing in a hard science that I want to do or like a fireman or a police officer or military, right? Like active service of some type of public service or that I'm like, I don't want to do any of those things. So I thought I'm going to have to, like, I didn't get, I didn't want to, anyway, I didn't do the DEA. I actually took the ASVAB test. I was thinking about joining the military because I'm like, that's a path of getting into the CEA or the FBI or the CIA is being going in the military. Anyway, anyway, I just came to this realization that I'm not going to do any of those things. I just have to figure out what I love and how I bring what I love into what I do. Because I don't, I'm not passionate about title. I got to figure that out, what I can bring in. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when did you start Vanguard title? 
I started that and that was in 2015. I started my own title company in 2012. Well, I went from that, I started my own office in 2007 of Atlas, or uh, I'm sorry, 2005. So a year and a half into this business, I opened my own branch of Atlas title, which is with my buddy here in, on 45th South. And then I did that from 05 to 2012. And then in 2012, I created Magellan doing it on my own. And then in 2015, I merged with Keystone Title to create Vanguard Title. Okay. So you really started your own business in 2012. Well, I mean, well, yeah, yes and no. From 2005 in my own branch, I did all of it myself. Yeah. I just had his name. I see. I did my own marketing, my own hiring, like all of it. I was the escrow officer, manager, marketer. Like I did the whole, anyway. If you've been enjoying Grit, please help us continue to grow the channel by leaving a five-star review and sharing it with a friend. Now back to Grit. Okay, so here you are, you're building this title business. So I guess really from 05 to 12, and then you merged, was it 15? You merged yeah, and built Magellan. So what was your thought process around why you wanted to come together with another business? And it wasn't like an acquisition, if I recall. It was yeah, more no, just like, hey, we're yeah. going to build our businesses together. Yeah. Well, a couple of things. One, I realized that, you know, I was strung out. One, I was getting, like, everything I was doing was like red, I was redlining every day, you know, just like, I remember telling Viv, like, I can't remember the last time I'm happy. Like, I, I see kids and they're happy. It's not that I'm not happy. Like, I'm not grateful. I'm not you know, but I'm just not like happiness is, is the present moment. It's mm-hmm. just being like, I'm just sitting here and man, I can hear the air conditioning going and just like, <laughs> I'm so happy. You know, just, just being in that moment. Like I can't remember, like literally I'm like, I'm not happy. I'm, I'm excited. I'm enthusiastic. I'm hardworking, but happiness, you ask me to sit still for five minutes. I'm like impossible. Cause there's something I have to be doing. Like there's an obligation, you know? And secondly, is that we had really grown so fast at Magellan that there were rumors that I was doing something illegal to get business. And my underwriters audit, you know, came in and talked to me. Under, they're like, how are you getting so much business so fast? And I'm like, we're just good at marketing. Like, we just work hard. And so there was all these things that saying I was doing something wrong. And I'm like, how do I get past the belief of like, literally, that's what, and I had hired some people and then they would not show up because they would think that they would hear this rumor that I was doing illegal activity. That's the only way I could be doing so much business. And so because I couldn't recruit talent, there was I'm like, how do I, how do I over, how do I overcome that? Cause we, we were, you know, it was sloppy. Like it was hard because we would get so much business and we could, then we couldn't manage it. Yeah. And, and so I met Jeff Poulton at Keystone title and we started talking and I thought, man, if I merge with him, and he's respected. He's got a law degree from Chicago law. Like he would not, people know he would not do illegal stuff. And then he had all these ideas. And I thought, man, like, so that's what like made me think of it. Like I got to, somehow I got to rebrand or something. Because, yeah. And you're like, and I can help you grow. You can give yeah, me. And so we sat and talked and I'm like, dude, we, this energy, if we came together, like, dude, you're good at that part of it. I'm good at this part of it. It gets rid of the, the thought that I'm doing something illegal. And, and even when we merged, to be honest, I mean, we had we had underwriters that sent us letters of cancellation, saying we, we think you're doing something illegal. And then two weeks later, they came back and they're like, "Okay, you're not. We're okay. We'll underwrite you. We're sorry. We believe the rumors." And but like that is how bad it was. So wow. it wasn't like I'm not I'm not making it up in my head. We got cancellation letters. And then once we merged, and they saw that, and then that synergy started happening. Like, and it was hard to get that going but that synergy of jeff being really good at understanding how to structure a business i just structure the things that like he, he's super savvy in that like that's stuff that i would just that would just half-ass you know yeah. I'm like, i don't know uh, we do this we do that hopefully that works out we'll see what happens but he was so that merger was honestly when you talk about having experienced something really bad and then making it happen that was amazing like i was yeah so so it was, I think, Louie, it was probably three years ago, probably something, maybe four, that you and I went to St. George for a weekend. And yeah, so in 2016, we're at Date with Destiny with you. Yeah, which so is where like we met seven, you, so It was like 17. Robin. 
It was, it was like 17. Yeah. So we met there and then got to spend a little time with you. And I remember that weekend, like you had your business, you were doing well, but like, like you hadn't reached this, right? Mm-hmm. There were still things, challenges. And oh, I mean, yeah. every, every company has its challenges, yeah. but you were talking about a lot of challenges that you were, you know, had experienced and been through and people leaving you. And I remember you specifically telling me how much money you were making at that time. And what, what I, I can't remember what I said. You made me curious the way I can't remember what I said. So I believe it was 250. Yeah, that's right. And so what was the journey from there to here? Because I mean, you spent a long time getting to there and, you know, overcame a lot of challenges and getting fired and having people say you're doing stuff illegal. And now to, to have just sold your business, tell us how you went from that to selling your business and like what, what created this? Cause that's a, that's a big gap. Like you filled a big yeah. gap in a short time frame. Yeah. I get emotional thinking about this because, uh, yeah, I get emotional thinking about it because um, the thing that, geez, I can't even say this. I remember believing that if I played full out, if I played full out, if I was giving my all, I started creating this limiting belief that it would just create my people, it would make them grow faster, and then they would just grow and faster and just lead me faster. And what I realized that what I was doing wrong, I had to unbelieve that. And one of the things that, you know, kind of came to me that my limiting belief is literally my real belief. The truth is the exact opposite of my limiting belief. I remember writing this down at UPW, just like figuring this out going, oh my gosh, I wrote down, if I play full out, I'll just help my people grow faster and they'll lead me faster. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, and I was sitting there at UPW, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's the exact opposite. If I play full out, they will never want to leave me uh, because they'll love and grow so much. They will recognize they'll never grow as much as they're growing with me. Mm-hmm. And that is what will keep them here. Yeah. I remember being at UPW, just like, you know, you're jumping up and down and all this stuff. And you're just like, I'm like, no, that is it. Now I have to figure it out. What is that like? Or what does it mean? You know? So how do you grow faster than the business grows so that you can keep inspiring them and, and helping them grow at that same pace? So what, what I realized is that that's when I came across Brene Brown and she talked. And so, so it's such an unlikely avenue, a branch, you know, a, a twist of events, right? A turn of whatever. But I realized that I didn't really love the people that I worked with. Like not, I wasn't as vested in them as I thought I was. And no matter how much, no matter how hard I worked, you know, when they say people is so freaking cliche, but they don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. Like we say it so fast, mm-hmm. so cliche. But what I realized is that true caring, and I learned this through Brene Brown, like empathy. And I can say empathy. And I was telling this to, to a business owner the other day. I'm like, when I say empathy, that's the key. He's like, okay, yeah, I got it. That makes sense. I'm like, no, if you think you know empathy, I promise you don't know it. The fact that you think you know it, you 100% have no idea what it means. I'm like, mm-hmm. you do not know. Cause I've studied it. I've read it. Like I've tried like for years. And anyway, so it was like, I came across her and really took a deep dive into what she taught. And, and I realized like, I wasn't having conversations. Like she talks about having conversations, like what do you, what do you need to work on and what goal do we need to set and all this stuff that, I wasn't having the conversations that she expressed or talked about in her books and on the audios and stuff. And what I found is that the more I practiced empathy and took this deeper dive into it, I could, it really it inspired the person, the, the people that I worked with, it inspired them to work harder than they've ever worked. To like, to dig deeper. It gave them permission to get more rejection, gave them permission to do things wrong more. It gave them permission to not, to be able to come back, not, not winning in an appointment, but knowing that they're still loved, like, and that they knew that I, if I could say this, but here's, here's what, like, they knew that I gave a shit and they're like, you really give a shit that that's why I stay. Cause you actually do. Like we're talking about my kids during my coaching pro during the coaching meeting. Like we talked about my kid and how to better his grades. That's all we talked about. And I remember one employee saying like, why, why are you doing this? What does this have to do with anything with title? And I said, 
you're going to feel better when you go home when you're able to help your son do that. They said, 100%. I said, and are you going to sleep better? They're like, yes. I said, honestly, I'm really selfish. They're like, how so? I'm like, because you're going to go home. Are you going to feel better? Yes. Are you going to sleep better? Yes. Are you going to come in to work more enthusiastically? Yes. That's why I did it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, honestly, I'm, I'm more selfish than what you think. But I know that if I don't solve your most immediate thing that's draining your energy, that where you're leaking, the energy that I think that you should have and the passion and enthusiasm you should have for your work, when it's not there, whatever's draining, whatever is on your mind, I don't care what it is. That's what I have to solve. Because yes. when I can solve that, you want to come work. You want to make more money. You want to look good. You want to help your clients. You, but you just don't have the energy or the patience or you know the presence of mind to do any of that in this moment because your dumb teenager is stressing you out. You know? yeah. So I'm like, let's, let's figure that out. Like, bring him in. I'll talk to him. They're like, will you talk to him? I'm like, sure. Give me his number. I'll call him. You're going to call my kid and talk. Yeah, 100%. They're like, great. You know That's what I mean? awesome. Like, so it's like, that is what I realized. That's what really changed. And then when that would happen, then they knew that when they would get recruited from other places, they'd say, who's going to talk to my kid? The new, this guy that wants me to work for him, he's not going to talk to my kid. Forget that. Like, and then it just changed everything. But that took 15, 16, 17, 18. That took four years of really dialing that in of doing that took four years of doing that before i really started seeing a payoff you know started like financially that it really paid off yeah okay so with the shortage of time louis um and this i tell you i could talk to you for days i love hearing your stories maybe just quickly like Why'd you guys decide to sell the business? I believe you actually went through a process and decided to sell the business, right? Yeah, yeah. So interestingly enough, my business partner, that's what I'm saying, Jeff is so smart. Like, I'm like, he is, he's just brilliant, you know? And, but we were talking one day and he says, hey, I think we should hire some consultants to really help us like get our business in tip-top shape, right? Like really just dial us in, like, what are we doing? What are we, you know, if we ever decided to sell in the next 10 years, like you sell at the highest multiple and get the most out of EBITDA because we, we just really like dial that in. Yes. So we're like, okay, let's start. He's like, so let's just do it now. So that way we're doing it for 10 years. Cause we literally had no plans of selling. Cause we had, had three buyers reproach us and, you know, private equity firm and we're at, you know, a couple of underwriters like, no way we're not doing it. We had no intention because we had just dialed it. I'm like, I literally love it now. Like, I'm not going to sell it when I love it, you know? And so anyway, then we started going through that process. And then shortly after that, we weren't even done. We were just in the beginning of that, really. We got approached by Fidelity in August. Yeah, like mid-August. and Of 2021. 2021. Yeah. 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 Jeff called me and says, Hey, Fidelity talked to us or called me and said, they want to go to lunch. I'm like, he said, do you want to go? I'm like, dude, we're not selling. Why would I go? He goes, yeah, it's a good point. Nah, I'm, I'll, whatever. I'll, I'll do it. Anyway. So a couple weeks later, he called me up and said, Hey, they, they want to be serious. Like they, they might be serious about making us an offer. Almost like maybe they might make us one. We can't refuse. I'm like, I'm like, Jeff, there's no way I get fired by Fidelity investments. And then Fidelity Title, I go, Fidelity Investments fired me, got me into this business. And then you think Fidelity Title is going to get me into it, anyway, out of it. But anyway, so we met with them and what they had to offer us as far as being more competitive was incredible. They really wanted in, they really wanted in Utah because Utah is, Utah was like the only non-attorney state that they were not in, that they didn't have a footprint in. They really wanted it in. And yeah, it's interesting. Utah is very... You know, and if I go anywhere else in the country, all these big companies are in there. And you go to Utah, and it's just all these independent, small, yeah, companies, right? Yeah, they, yeah, that's exactly right. And so it was crazy, but what it made me realize is that what they had—I would never would have looked at it—but what they offered was advantages to being more competitive. The culture would not change. I mean, there's structurally, there's things we got to do differently and whatnot, but like the culture and, and meetings and whatever we, how, however we have been winning, that's how we're going to continue to win. And then just felt like it was time for me to do that. And they gave us a, 
a nice offer in the purchase of it and something that met my goals. And, and I just felt like that it was time for me to let go of, to let go of that and to let go of that ownership and take chips off the table, right? Like that it's high and to be able to benefit from that, all of that work and all of that pain. And then, which not having ownership then would allow me to pursue some personal things in a way that uh, I wouldn't ever pursue them because of, you know, when you own a company or work for a company, even though I'm doing almost the same thing that I was doing before, 98% of what I was doing, it just, but thinking about what's profitability like and what happens if there's a wire fraud that puts us out of business or, you know, like all of that stuff. And honestly, that, that was another decision maker for me. It was that with wire fraud and all the stuff that was just happening. I'm like, man, the risk to all of us has just gone up tremendously. And for me, I just want to take chips off the table because risking with all of that, I kind of, I'm not ready. You know, I'm not, I'm ready to, to do that. You know, it was just yeah. right. It was the time. It was crazy. Like it was crazy. It was impeccable. I never would have done it because I had turned down three others. Sorry about the phone. Uh, (laughs) So you did it. Typically, when you make that change, people are going to require you stay with them for a certain period of time. Yeah, Yeah. It's always interesting to me to see how long people stay with them. Sometimes it's 10 years. Sometimes it's the two years that they require or whatever. Can I I just want to speak to that, though? Yeah, go ahead. That was so important for me because what I do... You know, and I talk, it was, it was honestly, when we did the whole thing, you know, at the employees, I cried many meeting with employees, talking to them about it because they just said, because I had this phrase, if it's best for you, then it's best for me. And they just said, I know this is best for you. So this is going to be best for me. Yeah. If it makes you play, play at a higher level, then it's going to be better for me. It's best for me. I said, it is because so, and why I did it is because. I don't need to earn. I don't need to have a big salary for what I do anymore, you know? And, and so what I do here, I can always do no matter what they pay me. You, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then even, so what I loved about it is that I honestly can see myself here for about another four more years, four or five more years, easy daily involvement, you know, as much as I am. And then, but it, it, it did, it will free me up to do some stuff that, you know, we talked about this a little prior to this, but I'm doing uh, breath work where I'm coaching people into that. And yeah, so, that more and uh, so, so I want to talk about that, Louis, because sometimes when life, like you were living life here when you were getting fired. Right. And then your life went to here and then it went to here and you joined partnerships with Jeff. And then, you know, you guys are up here getting all your financials in order and preparing your business so that at some point this could happen. And, you know, and then this happens and you sell your business. And now the observation I make in life is whenever you reach another milestone, some people think like that's the end goal, but all it does is it opens up new opportunities. And here's the thing, we've all heard this from Tony Robbins, you're either growing or dying. But the reality is, if you are not improving your life and expanding your knowledge and growing, there is no coasting, you are either going up, or you're going down. And so at this point, it's your choice. Okay, I hit this peak. And I've seen both, you know, I've seen a lot of people sell their companies for a lot of money. And they either elevate at that point, or they decline. They're not just going to stay flat. Right. Hmm. And so I've just heard, you know, I've heard a few stories about people coming to you doors opening. I'd love to hear a little bit more from you. We're going to, we're going to go a few more minutes here okay? because, because I really want to hear just like, so you sell a company. I think there's, you take your chips off the table. There's huge relief. You still have a desire to continue doing what you're doing. Yeah. But now additional doors open for you. Can you share some of just how this has happened for you? Yeah. Well, first off, three years ago, it was your wife that told me to go to this breath work with Zach Reader. And I'm just like, what is it? She's like, what, was that the one? Was that the one in Station Park at Farm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, well, I, went, yeah, I, I went, went to the one here in Sandy, but she said, Oh, yeah, I went to the Park. one in. I went to the one in Station Park and she sent you to the one in Sandy the next day. I remember right. that. That is right. Yeah. And she's yep. like, you need to go to that. So, you know, so it's interesting is that from that journey back in 19, pursued me to learn how to do it. Right. I pursued that kind of like went through the training of how to do that. I brought that breathwork back to my company, to my people. And it, it was very helpful for them. 
because we live in this stressful. This is very stressful. There's, there's going to be a lot of grit in real estate, a ton, you know, yeah. uh, super stressful. And anyway, so I just kept pursuing it, like just kept pursuing the breath work. And then why did you keep pursuing it? I mean, what was it doing for you? What, what, what did it, it do? You went in, I remember you went in and you responded to spring and you were like all about it. Like you're super passionate. Right. And I've yeah. seen that passion with you about around many things. Cause you get, you get to where, Hey, like this is changing my life. Right. And yeah. So, yeah. You saw me like a passion about the one wheel. You're like, that is amazing. Oh yeah. One yeah. The one, one wheel. Exactly. Yeah. That That's another one. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so I, because happiness, like I realized that, and even in 2019 before this breath work, and it was so interesting when spring told me to go do it. I realized I, I would tell this to Viv all the time. I think I can remember being happy for maybe a total of an hour in the last five years. I mean, like where I just sit and just happiness is now. It's not being happy. Yeah, where like, you just sit and you're full of gratitude and yeah. just so thankful for this life. There's right? nothing to do right now, but just sit here and just breathe. And, you know, I'm just like, I'm not thinking of anything other than watching this movie. Just this is awesome. Like, yeah. no, no, like that's just anyway. So what happened, I did that breath work and it, it, it shut that, that noise, like that monkey here, whatever you, you know, the reptilian, you know, what do you, what do you call it? The lizard brain or whatever, just like off. And I it just shut that off and opened something up. I'm guessing my, my experience yeah. was it opened me. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, when I finished the, that first time and Viv asked me what happened, I mean, my response was I talked to God. Like I heard things like I just cried. It was just so so mind-blowing for me and so that practice what happened was it kept and i had experienced anxiety at a high level i mean i went through a depression and all of this i went through a depression from june of 14 until uh october of 15 i went to upw like severe and so for those i mean there are a lot of people listening today louis that may not even know what breath work is and so Like if you're not familiar with breath work, research it. And there are a lot of people, myself included, that have had these out of body experiences that just blow you away, right? Like it's incredible. Yeah. You you want to just write it down so you can remember these things when you get done there. So yeah, and it wasn't even so much about that, really about the out of body experience. I mean, that was incredible, but it was the only thing that started taking this anxiety that I would constantly feel this, you know, just like. In my chest just pulling and i'd be like you know you're like man i gotta what is happening i gotta get rid of this and hitting my chest like i feel anxious and trying to get back and from 2019 to today i've literally experienced anxiety one time one time since then and it was intrusive for me and that breath work just changed me and so kind of led me to just be passionate about it and sharing about it and doing it on just holding a weekly session even if two people showed up, I'm like, I don't care. I'm just holding it, you know? And so you immediately said, Hey, I want to share this with others. I'm going to learn how to be an instructor of this. Yeah. And again, your wife was instrumental because I'm like, Hey, he said he would charge me this much. That seems like a lot to learn something. And I don't even know if, you know, she's like, do it. What do you, you know, like, I felt like Jack and the Beanstalk. Like, yeah, I'm like, there, I'm there's no doubt. magic beans and hopefully it works out. Yeah, there's no doubt if you feel like you need to do something, you need to do it. And Spring and I will both share that with you, Louie. Just, yes, go for it. (laughs) So, you know, talking about grit, though, is just that I would do that with my employees and it would benefit them, which encouraged me. It was very rewarding. Like I'm doing something that's helpful for them. So I'd come in at 6 a.m. and do it with them or I'd stay until 8 p.m. and do it, you know, just do it in a conference room or wherever we could find space to do it. And I just started holding a weekly class at night. Like everybody, I should not just open this, like everybody should be able to come and to attend this. And so I just started holding this weekly class in my uh, Murray office. And then just like for anybody to come, doesn't matter, whatever. And I just started having really good experiences and just felt this call of, of like, I need a different place to do it. And so look, recently I bought a cabin up at Big Cottonwood Canyon. And at the end of September, beginning, at, yeah, like September 30th. Or so something. this was post the sale of your business. This was after taking no, chips no, off the table? No, or no, this is before we even decided. Okay. We were still, we were still, we didn't decide, decide until end of October. Okay. It wasn't, it was just like, maybe let's just so talk. You, you found this, you found this amazing little retreat up, yeah. uh, 
the, the canyons right next to the ski resorts. Yeah, right next to, yeah. What a, what a great place. It was great. And just started holding practices up there. And my wife was like, we're really going to pay $1.2 million for a place that you're going to do breath work at. Like, can we afford this? Like, again, this is pre-sell. So this is, she's like, can we afford it? Like, why are we doing this? How much, how much will you make doing breath work? Will we be able to make the payment or, you know, just all these things. I'm like, all those things don't matter because I'm supposed to do it. It does. So it doesn't matter. It'll figure itself out. It'll figure itself out. Like, so I've just been doing it since September. And then most recently I got, I had a lady come that was well connected with, with famous, you know, people that are in the music industry and stuff. And anyway, she came and had this incredible experience and then invited me to meet her friends that, you know, and, and they do these, um, they're uh, like a business consultant, like a promotional consultant and help you uh, promote, you know, like if you had a, like they helped, uh, I don't know who it was, but like a Sundance film festival, they're helping them promote their film and, and all this stuff. And anyway, she, I did a breathwork practice with her and she says, oh my gosh, like this has changed me and I need you to meet. And, you know, she said to me, can you do this for 60,000 people at a time? And I'm like, 60,000 people. What are you talking about? She's like, I'm doing this event at Rice Eccles Stadium. I want you to consider like being able to do this there. And I'm like, well, we can't do what we did. You know, I'm just, she goes, stop telling me what we can't do, but just, we got to figure this out because we need to introduce this to people because it can change their lives. I said, I mean, I want to do it. And uh, that led to just her introducing me to other people. And, you know, there's a local music artist, Alex Boyer, came to our practice a week ago, Monday. He had this incredible experience and called me up the next day and said, I booked the Maverick Center to do a mental health concert this summer. And he's, and he's like, and between the, the songs, I have these uh, messages that I want shared, people to share certain messages in between the songs about what it feels like to go through mental health, you know, you know, anxiety and depression and stuff. And he's like, he goes, I want you to be sharing messages in my concert this summer. Will you do that? And he's like, this is, this is so changing. You, you like, you, you understand it. And anyways, this has led to all these people that, because it's so powerful when you practice it, you realize that it, it's hard, you know, you know, you've done it. It's hard to explain, but when you practice it consistently, it quiets your mind. And, you know, when we talk about having grit, honestly, I will tell you this, like since doing the breath work, I almost feel like I have less grit because it's quieted my mind so much. I realized I needed all this power because I was making up these stories. of Now, well, now you have peace. Now you, yeah, have, now peace. you have peace. I'm like, no, I get it. Yeah. And now I'm just, it, it's like, it's clarity. It's yeah. not grit. To me, grit is when they're, I don't know. I'm just saying this for the first time, but it's like, we need grit. If we have a lot of shit in our head, <laughs> you need to like get through yeah. it and then yeah. get to the end of it. But with, the more you get it out, you realize like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't need grit. It's just persistence. It's just clarity. It's just like, I'm going to do the hard things. And, yeah. and I yeah. realize like, man, it has been, it's been super powerful. You know? Yeah, it, it doesn't always need to be hard, right? I mean, yeah. I guess this is your message, Louis. It doesn't. Yeah, we're making need to it hard. hard. Yeah, yeah. Like, I love it. Love yeah. it. So, so, this is the last thing, and we'll wrap up because we're over on time. But I remember specifically a time that you shared a dream with me that you had. This is why I love I love my time with you, Louis, because you always like you share enlightening things that I remember. Like, and yes. and you shared a dream about. Uh, you know, you drove past Tony Robbins. He'd moved into a neighborhood and oh, you were yeah. like, oh, that's Tony Robbins. You backed up and you were like, and he basically said to you, you are replacing me, right? I mean, because yeah. you had this vision of, you had this vision of wanting to share and impact people's lives and all this stuff. And that's that's been your vision since I've known you. Yeah. And so for me, it's so exciting to see you transforming from title to what you're really passionate about, which is helping people transform and change their lives. So yeah. congratulations for that. Yeah. yeah and, yeah. and, you know, I don't know if there's anything else you want to share, like as a last message as we wrap up, but Louie, thank you for being here with us today. Um, yeah. Brian, do you have any last words that you'd want yeah, to share? Yeah. One thing that you said, like, I totally forgot. I told you that dream. Like that's what you said. Oh my gosh. I totally forgot that I told you that. Uh, so it's just so interesting. It's like when Alex Boyer called me up the next day and said, I really want you to do this. And, 
And I was like, really? Like, you just, like, you, we just met mm-hmm. yesterday. It's not even, like, I looked at my watch. I'm like, it's not, it's been, it's been 22 hours. How do you know? And he said, you're like Tony Robbins to me. He's like, but you talk about Jesus. What, you know, it's like, you, you're like Tony Robbins, but you talk about Jesus so much, you know? He's like, that's why I want you there. And it's just kind of, it's so funny you bring that up because like that has been my dream. And I just thought, oh my gosh, he said it. He said, I want to be like him. That's it. And then I told Alex, I'm like, that's been my thing. I know I'm supposed to do this with you because yeah. why would you say that? Well, you know, when, when you told me that dream, I had goosebumps. I have goosebumps right now. You know, you get that feeling of just like, it's a special yeah. moment and it's a special moment. Like I knew back then, Louis, that at some point that would be your future and not exactly that, but yeah. impacting, yeah. impacting lives in a massive way where, you know, in front of these 60,000 people or 30,000 people or whatever it is, yeah. these massive groups, which, which I know like, that was a passion of yours. Like you, I remember you coming in to speak to these small groups and real estate offices just to make a difference for 12 to 15 people. And now to see you being able to, uh, again, elevate and, and have these opportunities to, to have that kind of impact. I'm just super excited for you. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Yeah, thank you. This, uh, I love being with you today. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for being here, Louis. Uh, for all of our listeners, um, you know, I know this, uh, this episode had nothing to do with real estate. And I actually like that because uh, it's really these types of things and just going deep into to everybody's challenges and how they overcome those challenges. That's, you know, that's what makes a difference in our lives. And uh, Louis, again, I thank you for being here today. Yeah. Uh, it's been awesome. I knew it would be. Yeah. And uh, I'm just grateful that, you know, you're willing to spend time with people like me. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. If you have an interest in a free seven-day trial of Sisu, go to sisu.co, S-I-S-U dot C-O. Make sure that you use the coupon code GRIT, that's G-R-I-T, to waive all your setup fees and receive a 10% discount on your subscription. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and want to subscribe, search GRIT, the Real Estate Growth Mindset on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean. And with that, we'll catch you next time. Take care.